It's great to see you, friends. My name is Christopher. I am one of the pastors here on staff. Lionel, thank you so much. What a gift, the story that you shared with us this morning. That just filled my heart with so much joy to see the change that's happening because the body of Christ here believes in the mission of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Raise your hand. You're going to want a Bible this morning as we continue our Luke series. Just wanted to give you a brief update on Pastor Guy and Adam. They're currently flying back from Egypt. They have been there training a group of Arab pastors and church planters. I think I have some slides here of Adam and Guy. It was an incredible trip. Um, many of you prayed for them the last couple weeks that, that they've been gone. Guy, our founding pastor, Adam, our senior pastor, had been there. They've felt your prayers. And Adam right here, I had to include this. Be careful of what you post on social media. I love, I love those pictures right there. And I'm sure in the weeks to come, there are going to be many, many, many stories, testimonies of what our Lord and Savior Jesus is doing in a part of the world to expand and advance the kingdom of God. Today, we're going to be continuing our series in Luke. So if you're just joining us today, you picked a great Sunday to come here to River West. Welcome. We have been opening up Luke's gospel, and so far on this incredible journey that we've had, we've dove deep into Christ's life, his teachings, his miracles, the signs and wonders that he has performed, and it has been amazing. Last week, Pastor Eric did an incredible job unpacking a passage where Jesus casts a demon out of a man who was mute, who couldn't speak. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard what that man said when he started talking. Would you have loved to have been there? His first words when his mouth was open to actually hear his testimony. In fact, in the passage that Eric preached last week, it said, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and listen to this, the people marveled. The man spoke, and the people marveled. And I love that. If you want a taste of what it's like to marvel out of, at a testimony a life, of, of a life that Jesus has changed, come to the baptism service tonight after the 5 p.m. worship gathering. Because you'll, you'll marvel because the gospel is not just a religious principle that we understand. It's a power that changes our lives. So today, as we continue our series in Luke's gospel, we're going to pick up where Eric left off last week in Luke 11 with this crowd that had witnessed Jesus Christ perform an awesome sign and wonder right in front of their very eyes. However, as we'll see together today, not everyone in the crowd was a marveler. Not everyone marveled at the miracle that Jesus did. 
In fact, there were some who cynically scoffed and went as far as actually insisting that Jesus Christ was possessed by a demon. You can go back. The message is online if you missed it and listen. But the crowd actually accused Jesus of casting out demons by being filled with a demon himself. But those familiar with Jesus' ministry and his life know that conflict was nothing new for Jesus. Everywhere he went, people either marveled or murmured or wanted to kill him. As we'll see over the next few Sundays in Luke's gospel, Jesus is not a meek, mild-mannered Jewish rabbi who minded his P's and Q's while performing a little miracle here and there. Instead, the real Jesus, the authentic Jesus of the New Testament was a controversial Jewish leader who cast out demons, calmed storms, called down woes, and resurrected dead people all while claiming to be king of kings and lord of lords. This is why we'll, get, we'll gather later tonight around a baptismal and marvel together because we worship a savior who actually has the power to radically change everything about who we are. Amen? Amen. So if you're with me this morning, open up to Luke 11. We're going to jump in where Eric left off last week. And I'm going to say a prayer over here for whatever's happening. Over here, we're going to pray for the reading of God's word. And we're going to pray that whatever is happening right here, that the Lord is going to be present in our time together. Would you bow your head? Let's ask the Lord to be with us. Father, thank you that you're present. Thank you that your word has power. You are a God who heals. You're a God who changes everything, whatever's going on right now with our brother or sister. Just pray that you'd stretch out your healing hand. Thank you. You're with us, your resurrection and your life. And so, Father, we put our trust in you this morning, Lord, to do what you will in our gathered time together. In the mighty name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen. Amen. This morning, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is God's word. Now, because this passage contains a number of elements that make it somewhat difficult to decipher what Jesus is trying to impress upon us here, there's three basic scenes that make up this passage that we're going to camp on today. Three scenes. A problem with a crowd, a promise of a sign, and a portrait of salvation. So if you're taking note, a problem with this crowd that's gathering around Jesus, a promise of a sign from Jesus, and finally, this portrait of salvation involving lamps and eyes and rooms and cellars. So let's start where the passage begins with this problem with a crowd that gathers. It says in verse 29, Luth records and tells us that the crowds at that time were increasing around Jesus, meaning that his public ministry has spread word of what Jesus has done. He's performed many signs and miracles. The rumor has spread that Jesus is not just going around proclaiming that God's kingdom has arrived, but he's also performing these signs and wonders. And people are showing up to see what's happening. However, in that ever-increasing crowd, there's not only honest seekers or people that need and want to experience the gospel being proclaimed or coming for healing. There's also a growing number of skeptics, cynics, and scoffers. Bless you. In fact, back in Luke, earlier in the chapter, in verse 16, Luke tells us this same crowd came, and as they saw Jesus perform this miracle where he cast the demon out of a man, and in verse 16, Luke tells us, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So when you see that word sign, signs in the Bible were miracles or supernatural wonders that God used to convey his power and confirm his word. Miracles, healings, demonstrations that were supernatural that did two things. They, they confirmed God's power and God's word. Last week, Eric 
reminded us how God used Moses to show and demonstrate many great signs in Egypt. And in his squaring off with Pharaoh, from heaven he received power to turn water into blood. The land was filled with frogs. There was great darkness that settled over the land of Egypt. If you remember the story of the ten plagues, each plague was a sign, a demonstration of God's power, but a confirmation of Moses' message and word that he had received from God. Now, what you need to know about the signs and wonders that Jesus had performed is up until this point in Luke's gospel, Christ has performed many signs to convey his power and confirm the gospel message that he is proclaiming. He gave sight to the blind, the lame walk, the deaf heard, lepers were cleansed. He fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. He calmed a storm. He cast out demons. He raised Jairus's daughter from the dead. Not to mention that the crowd asking from, for another sign from heaven in this passage had just seen Jesus exercise a demon out of a man that couldn't speak just a moment ago. Which is a strange thing to ask for when you're standing in front of a man that just had the power to heal a demon-possessed man. Yet, instead of marveling, they demanded more and more signs from Jesus to test him, to trap him. They insisted, give us more, another healing, another miracle, another dead person resurrected. Then, Jesus, will know that you're the real deal. But instead of giving in to their testing and their demands for more signs, Jesus soberly tells them in verse 29, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. Now I know when we read that, many of us, our reaction is to kind of throw the brakes on and say, wait a minute, Jesus. Evil is a four-letter word. That is a very strong term. What's so, what's so wrong, Jesus, about needing enough evidence and proof before believing in something? But Jesus knew better. Deep down, he knew that no matter how many signs he did, it would never be enough to convince some in the crowd that he was the Son of God. And you see, the evil that Jesus is identifying in the ever-increasing, growing crowds is not skepticism, it's cynicism. It's cynicism. And there is a world of difference between the two. I made a chart. This is what I do. Here's the difference 
between skepticism and cynicism. One is evil, one is not. Skepticism is a suspicion of believing in something or anyone without strong evidence or reasons. It's holding suspicion out until evidence actually proves that someone is worth believing or something is worth believing in. But it can be a very healthy thing. It's open-minded. Uh, a skeptic is convincible. They just need evidence. They need reason. They need proof. Skepticism is you might question others, and it's fostered by doubt. And it's fueled by our brains, by our intellect. And that could be a very healthy thing. And God comes to the skeptic, and God loves skeptics. Jesus loved skeptics. In fact, the story of Thomas is a story of a skeptic actually coming to a realization that Jesus really is the Lord and King overall. And so you can read later in John chapter 20, Jesus comes to Thomas and Thomas has insisted, unless I see his wounds, I put my finger in the holes where those nails went through and, and I put my hand in his side where that spear went through, I will never believe. And so Jesus comes to Thomas the skeptic and he says, Thomas, stop doubting and start believing. And Thomas comes to faith and he says, my Lord and my God. It's the story of a skeptic realizing that Jesus is who he claimed to be. But cynicism is different than skepticism. See, cynicism is a suspicion of believing in anything or anyone but yourself. It, it disbelieves everything. Instead of being open-minded like a skeptic, a cynic is closed-minded. Instead of questioning others, you are critical of others. Instead of it being fostered by doubt and questions, it's actually fostered more by disappointment. Instead of it mainly being an intellectual thing, it's actually a thing that's predominantly fueled by emotion. Now, why would I bring up cynicism? Because I believe it has become one of the most pervasive roadblocks to faith in our culture. You see, the cynic is always observing, always critiquing, but never believing, never hoping, never trusting. Cynicism is increasingly, I believe, the dominant spirit in our society. And living here in the Pacific Northwest, cynicism is in the coffee. <laughs> And it's almost hailed as a virtue. In fact, to be deemed as somebody that's intellectually enlightened or emotionally healthy, you almost have to become a cynic in Portland. There's a fascinating book, I geek out on this stuff, called Cynicism and the Evolution of the American Dream by Wilbur Caldwell. And I'd like to read this quote to you this morning. And I want you to think about the times that we live in as I read this quote. 
Most Americans are vaguely conscious of and strangely fascinated by their own cynicism. At the same time, most are unaware of the peril it represents to our democracy, our ideals, our institutions, and our way of life. The American cynic is no longer a witty, worldly critic. He or she has barricaded himself in a private redoubts of unremitting mistrust. Alone, disappointed, there's that word, and bitter, he is most often melancholy and withdrawn. Gone are the clever sarcasm, the poignant irony, the knowing wink, and self-assured sneer. Today's cynic has no energy for such endearing humor. Only rarely does he allow himself the satisfaction of a mocking aside, a knowing nod, or a theatrical wince of pain. End of quote. I believe what this quote captures is becoming one of the dominant undercurrents that makes gospel faith very difficult in our current culture. Because the gospel cannot grow in a culture of cynicism. You can come with your skepticisms, like Thomas, and you can actually experience faith. The reason that Jesus says this is an evil generation, the evil he's pointing out, is a cynicism that holds on to disappointment and refuses to believe. And I think that in our culture, the growing undercurrent of cynicism, it's because our trusts have been betrayed. The things that we have put our hopes in have disappointed us. And as the writer of the book of Proverbs, King Solomon, says in Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And in the end, that's what cynicism is. It's a heart sickness that shuts out hope. A heart sickness that's devoid of hope. Thankfully, Jesus Christ loves us way too much to let us wallow in cynicism and waste our lives away. So he promises us and the unbelieving crowd in Luke 11, a sign that can save and set us free. Let's return to the passage and look at verses 29 and 30. After bringing the condemnation and saying, this generation is an evil generation, it seeks for a sign, Jesus goes on and says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man be to this generation. So the heart condition of this unbelieving, cynical crowd leads Jesus to promise this sign of Jonah. 
But as we look at the text, this, this cryptic promise of a sign, as we dig deeper, we see that this promise is not as much about something, a promise of something, but someone, a person, or more specifically, the Son of Man. The number one title that Jesus referred to himself as from the book of Daniel, the Son of Man, a kingly title, a messianic title. We see, this is interesting, look at this, at verse 30. Look at your Bible. Look at what Jesus says about this sign. He says, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man be to this generation. And a really helpful passage in Matthew, if you turn to the left, Jesus gives an explanation of how the Son of Man will become a sign to the world. And so we read in Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40, But Jesus answered the crowd, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we see here that the sign that Jesus says, I won't give you the sign that you're asking for. And the only sign that I will give is just like Jonah spent three days in the whale, in the belly of the whale, I am going to spend three days, three nights in the belly of the earth, and I'm going to rise again. It's It's a prophecy, a foretelling of his own betrayal, death, burial, and resurrection, which we refer to that message of those events that Jesus accomplished. We call that the euangelion, the gospel, the good news of God. Friends, in the end, only the sign and wonder of the gospel is potent enough to overcome our bitter disappointments and doubts. It is the only sign that can heal and crush the cynicism within our own hearts. Because if you believe the gospel and the resurrection of Christ, then no matter how many times your hopes have been crushed, you have a Savior and Lord that went to the grave and back for you. And if that's the sign that you build your life on, that you live from, then no matter how many bitter adversity and trials you face in this life, you will be able to face them head on with your head up because you will have 
a living hope that this world cannot take away. Amen? Amen. Now, although this is the hope that our cynical world desperately needs today, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the gospel is not the kind of sign and wonder that our world is seeking after. And he tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. You want to turn there? Some of you do. That's great. You're still with me. <laughs> You're worried. You're like, do I want to turn there? I don't know. You do. Listen to what Paul says here about the kind of sign and wonder that we actually want from God. We don't want the gospel. We want what Paul talks about right here. One of two things. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's helpful that Paul refers to the gospel, the preaching of Christ crucified for our sins, resurrected from the dead as a stumbling block. Because we tend to struggle and stumble over the gospel because it requires us to do two things that actually balk at our modern sensibilities. Two things. To repent of arrogance and pride and to repent of sin. In Luke 11, Jesus, after talking about this sign in verse 31 of Luke 11, he tells us, that the queen of the south will rise up at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, there's so much going on right here. And we don't have time to do an entire lesson on, on the queen of the south. It's the queen of Sheba. You can go back in the Old Testament and read this in First Kings. It's an incredible story. She comes to hear... Solomon makes this pilgrimage, this long voyage to come to King Solomon, who actually ended up dying a cynic. But at the time, he was the wisest man alive. And she recognizes that he has received wisdom from God. Jesus uses that story to say, if the queen of the south traveled this long distance to hear Solomon and recognize that he had wisdom from God, you're actually standing in the presence of somebody that's infinitely greater than Solomon, and yet you're wise in your own eyes. You see, at the root of so much cynicism and skepticism is the belief that we are ultimately wiser than God. That our vantage point of way, and see, way of seeing things actually is perfect and wise. So the gospel, what it does, and this is difficult for us, it's a stumbling block. We struggle with this, is it requires us to humble ourselves, 
to turn away from our own wisdom and way of seeing things and to admit that we are not wise, that we're not wise, that we don't see things as they truly are. But secondly, it requires us to repent of immoral behavior and sin. And so Jesus continues, and if you look at verse 32 in Luke 11, our home passage here, He tells us, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Those familiar with the book of Jonah in the Old Testament know that Nineveh was one of the most wicked, immoral cities in the Old Testament. And the reason that Jesus is connecting to his pronouncement of the gospel here is if this wicked city of Nineveh repented when they heard the preaching of a cynical prophet named Joah, he's a hot mess of a person. Go back, read the book. You don't want your kids growing up to be like Jonah. You just don't. He's not a hero, like at all. He's a cynical Old Testament prophet. But if they've repented... All of Nineveh repented. Even their cows repented. If you go back to the story, they put on sackcloth and ashes. It's a really cool story. It's awesome. We just turn it into like a VeggieTales video. It's actually, it's really salty. It's a great story. Jesus says if the, and the entire city of Nineveh repented, how much more will the, should you actually turn your life around and repent of your sins? If you're standing before the Son of God himself, they repented at Jonah's preaching. Will you repent at this preaching that I am proclaiming to you that the kingdom of God is at hand, that you can be forgiven of your sins, that the Son of God is going to lay his life down and be crucified and on the third day rise from the dead? Will you Repent and believe the gospel. If you do, let me give you a promise, River West. No matter how dark your life is right now, no matter how many dark deeds you have done, your life can be flooded with resurrection light and you can become a holy, bright, new creation. Flooded with light from within. That can happen in your life this day. We'll be celebrating it tonight after the five o'clock service in baptism, in that sacrament, but it can happen for you today. I hope it will. To show you how that can happen within your own heart, Jesus gives us this portrait of salvation where we'll end our time in verses 33 to 36. Look at this. Open your eyes and see this potent picture of salvation. What happens in our lives when we repent and believe the gospel. In verse 33, Jesus says, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. 
your eye is the lamp of the body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is a portrait of salvation Jesus gives us here that's actually influenced by the ways that the Greco-Roman people understood how our eyes work. Before they understood scientifically how our eyes allowed us to enjoy the miracle of sight, they would go into a dark room and they would realize that they can't make out the objects in a dark room unless a light, a lamp, is lit. And then you can see in a dark room. And Jesus, referring to his own preaching in verse 33, he says, nobody after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Jesus is talking about his preaching there and saying, I'm lighting up the room with my preaching about the kingdom of God. You see, but the Greco-Roman people, they believed that our eyes, that there was a lamp. There must be a lamp or a light in a good eye that allows people to see, but a bad eye is missing a lamp. The light is out. That's why you find that kind of terminology connected to the human eyes in the Bible. The light of our eyes, the lamp of our eyes, is because they believe that there must be some sort of lamp that allows us to enjoy the miracle of sight. That's why Jesus in verse 34, he says, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. And when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. What Jesus is saying here is he says, you know, if you don't see the gospel that I'm proclaiming to you. See the sign and wonder of my power in my life. It's not a problem with a lack of light. It's a problem with your own sight. Jesus makes a promise though, a healing promise to us. He says, but if your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives light. It's fascinating. This week, I was reminded the earliest Christian hymn outside of those recorded in Scripture is called the Foes Hilaron or the Gladdening Light. This hymn was written in the late 3rd or early 4th century AD. It's found in a collection of songs that were meant to be sung in the morning and the evening, before meals, and at candle lighting. The foes hillerong is to be sung at the lighting of lamps in the evening, and so it, it came to be called the lighting of lamps. Him, the light or the lamp lighting him. 
So according to church historians, at the time that this hymn was written in Jerusalem by an anonymous author, a lamp was perpetually kept burning in the empty tomb of Christ. Its glow was a symbol of the living light of Jesus. So as Christians gathered to worship, the hymn was sung, and in a tradition known as the lighting of lamps, a candle lit from the lamp in the empty tomb of Christ was brought from the tomb, and its bright solitary flame would call the church together to worship as that candle was passed home to home, lighting up the room and leading the prayers of the people to their risen Lord and Savior. Folks, when your life is lit by the light of Christ, everything about you changes. You will see yourself and the world and the Lord in a radically new light. Amen? What I'd like to do this morning, we're going to actually end, before we go to the communion table, a little differently. I'm going to have the worship team come up here. And we're going to recite the words of the foes Hilaron, the gladdening light, together as a community, as an expression of our faith in Jesus, but also just as a humble admission, admission that we're living in dark times and we need the light of Christ more than ever. Amen? Amen. Amen. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you this morning, we're going to stand. We're going to take a moment. We're going to quiet our hearts. And what we're going to do is we're going to recite this hymn together as an expression of faith before going to the communion table. This morning, we'll go to the table to celebrate our Lord and Savior. You'll take the bread and the cup if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If he's your light, then the table this morning, it's open for you to come for all those that have placed their faith in Christ. If you're here today and the light of Christ is shining into your heart and you're recognizing perhaps for the first time that you need light, As we recite this prayer together, this may be your first honest prayer of belief in the Lord, and you can become a Christian today. Come to the table. Celebrate your first communion alongside other believers of light. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord, and let's recite these great words that the church has sung together for centuries to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's say these words together. O gladdening light of the holy glory of the immortal Father, the heavenly, the holy, the blessed, O Jesus Christ, having come upon the setting of the sun, having seen in light of the evening, We praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God. Worthy it is at all times to praise thee in joyful voices, O Son of God, giver of life, for which the world 
glorifies thee. Amen.